Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Volcanic eruptions are far more predictable than earthquakes. Scientific equipment is available to forecast an eruption with about as much accuracy as there is to predict a hurricane. These predictions can tell when it is time to evacuate and to stay away from an active volcano. Unfortunately, the information available from these prediction devices is not always heated. That's what happened in the South American nation of Colombia in 1985 and later in 1993. Victoria Bruce is the author of a new book entitled No Apparent Danger, which tells the stories of these two volcanic eruptions and the deaths that followed. Bruce an investigative journalist and geologist, describes how it was known that the Nevado del Ruiz volcano and eight years later the Galeras volcano erupted and those who were aware of the volcanic instability failed to warn those in peril. The Nevado del Ruiz eruption killed 25,000 people. At Galeras, a group of scientists who were in the crater at the time of the eruption were killed. I spoke with Victoria Bruce by phone shortly after No Apparent Danger was published and began by asking her to tell the stories of these tragedies. tragedies that happened, one in 1985 and another in 1993. And no apparent danger refers to the fact that in both cases, no one had to die in these volcanic eruptions. Yet apparently someone did. Yes. Tragically, 25,000 people were killed in the first eruption of a volcano called Nevado del Ruiz in central Colombia. And for about a year prior to that eruption, the scientists had been studying the volcano and they knew very well that the volcano had the potential to actually bury a city. But because of politics and scientific infighting and the problems with the government, that no one was told in this town. And the night the volcano erupted, no one evacuated. And a huge wall of mud coming from the top of the volcano actually came down the valley and buried an entire city. Well, scientifically, it can be predicted that a volcano will uh, uh, erupt? Yes, we have really good information on when a volcano will erupt, or approximately when. I'd say it's about equivalent to a hurricane. We know it's coming. We don't know exactly when it will hit land or where, but we definitely have the data that we can tell people, you need to get out of the way. And this is why we were so successful at Mount St. Helens in 1980. Even though that was a really big learning experience for North American geologists and volcanologists, a volcano will always rattle and always show signs seismically. Seismic meaning coming from the Latin word to shake. It, It will always be rattling before an eruption. It will never erupt without warning. 
Well, what happened? Uh, the warning was there. The Colombian and perhaps other international scientific visitors were aware of this, but you're saying the people didn't know? The people were given the information. In fact, a scientist had given a, a, a presentation to the communities, and the newspapers reported that there was 100% probability that this city would be buried by a mudflow if the volcano erupted. That's a pretty astounding statement, 100% probability. Exactly. And you can imagine now the mayor of the town surrounding the volcano, the mayors and the governors and even the local priests, they they didn't want their people to be afraid and they didn't want them to fear, and they also didn't want property values to, to fall and they didn't want to lose tourism. And so they tried to kind of ignore the threat of the volcano. And so what happened was, even though the people had been given that information, they were also given information by people that they trusted who said, don't worry about it, the volcano's not a threat, stay in your home. So the night the volcano erupted, the people felt that they were safe. The volcano was 40 miles away, and it couldn't hurt them. That It was their protector and their friend, and the Colombians had a very kind of... Um, familiar relationship with the volcano and they were they weren't afraid and then the volcano erupted and it was seen but by the time the evacuations were called there weren't any idea the people had no idea where to go nothing was planned was it the kind of circumstance where people had to walk to escape or did they have vehicles or um, community vehicles there were both some people had vehicles and some people were walking or running. But the tragic thing was that when a mud flow, this mud was coming down the valley and it opens up onto this incredibly flat plain at the bottom of the mountains, people needed only to walk maybe 10 minutes. They had actually had two hours to escape, but they just had no idea where to go. And instead of walking to high ground, Many people walked to low-lying areas like soccer fields where they had been told to evacuate when an earthquake happened. And so when the mud came, it just completely buried people and washed them away and drugged houses along and just ripped out structures and just completely annihilated the town. There's a fellow named uh, Stanley Williams who's prominent in your story. What's his role? Well, when the... The Colombians had been asking for help in 1984 and 1985 from the international community to help with Nevado del Ruiz because they really didn't have any idea about what to do about this, this volcano. There was just no expertise. And really, almost no one came to help from outside in the U.S. Geological Survey. They were trying to get help down there, but the Italians didn't come, the Japanese... And then finally, after the tragedy, the entire volcanology community of the world descended on Columbia. Stanley Williams was an American professor from Arizona State University, and he was one that went down after the fact. And he started working in Columbia after that. And he becomes central in my book because he's very much a part of the, of the tragedy that followed seven years later, when a volcano named Galera started to, to activate and again, the international community not wanting a repeat of what happened at Armero at Nevado del Ruiz, they were very much interested in, in making sure that Galeras didn't have the same type of eruption. How far apart are these two volcanoes? They are 300 miles apart. 
uh, one of they are part of the same chain. They are part of the Colombian Andes, which is part of the uh, South American Andes, and they're formed by the tectonic collision of one ocean plate, which is subducted under the South American continent. And because of that subducting plate, it's being pushed underneath. Part of the ocean floor is actually being pushed underneath the South American continent. Those rocks below kind of act as, as fuel and melt the, the rocks below the South American continent. And that melted rock becomes magma and wants to push its way to the surface. And so you get these very explosive volcanoes on the surface much like we have in North America, Mount Rainier, Mount Shasta, and Mount St. Helens. The difference, of course, between Mount Rainier and Mount Shasta is that they've been dormant for many years. Well, but they are definitely active volcanoes, and scientists uh, can are worried about eruptions from both of those volcanoes. And also large mud flows like happened at Nevado del Ruiz because both of those volcanoes are covered with glaciers. And even a small eruption can trigger a huge mud flow from the uh, heat of the uh, magma coming out. Yes, the heat of the, the magma, even a small eruption, you know, you have lots and lots of, of ice on top. So the heat, being able to melt that uh, with, with millions of tons of water coming down steep valleys, and of course there are many, many people living around Shasta and, and Rainier and Mount St. Helens. So going back to... Um Stanley Williams, tell us more about his role in this uh, story. Well, in 1989, after Galera started to become active, the scientists from the international community decided that Galeras really doesn't have the potential to be as threatening as Nevado del Ruiz was. But it was still a very uh, interesting volcano to study. It was easily accessible because there was a road that led to the top of the volcano. And it was a good place for scientists to learn more about volcanoes. And so Stanley Williams organized a workshop and invited some of the biggest names in the volcano business from around the world. And he wanted them to kind of start studying different parts of Calaris. And a part of this meeting, one of the days was, was reserved for field trips into the field. And the day, the fourth day of the meeting, which was a Thursday, the people divided up into different groups that would take expeditions around the mountain. And there was one group that was led by Stanley Williams that would actually go inside the volcano's crater and up onto its cone. And some of them would take gas samples, and some of them would take gravity measurements. And so he took this trip, and they started out about 9 o'clock in the morning. And by 1.45, the volcano was pressurizing with unbelievable force and blew while these people were in the crater. Six scientists were instantly killed, as well as three tourists that were on the volcano with them. And Stanley Williams uh, knew better but didn't say? Well, that's one of the controversial things about this book, is that when Williams first came back to the United States, he told everyone in the, in the scientific community that there was no way of knowing this volcano was dangerous that there was no signs at all. And what really happened was that there indeed were signs, and Williams knew about them. The volcano was behaving exactly like it had before its eruption six months earlier. 
Well, but Victoria, the people that into the crater with him were never given this information. They were only told the volcano was completely tranquil. Victoria, I want to uh, have you explain the background and uh, what your investigation uh, indicates that Stanley Williams knew but uh, didn't say at the time. But first, I want to tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Victoria Bruce, the author of a new book called No Apparent Danger, which is a true story of a volcanic disaster in Colombia at two active volcanoes, one called Galeras and one called Nevado del Ruiz. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Victoria, tell us what happened. Uh, what was not said is uh, you uh, have found out and tell in your book? Well, what's very interesting is that as a geologist, I had heard the story that after the people were killed in Galeras, that they had seen these strange signals, and only later did they understand that these were precursors to an eruption. And these signals were seismic signals that the Colombians called tornillos, which is the Spanish word for screw. And what would happen was on the seismograph, the needle would etch a long screw-shaped form. And these, these look similar to lie detector tests where you see the needle jumping. Well, inside the volcano, in cracks in the volcano, pressure was building. Fluids were so hot that the steam was flashing and reverberating and actually making the rocks rattle. And these signals would show up on the seismograph. These signals were seen in July of 1992 and recorded because Galeras has many seismometers on top of it and many people watching it. And it erupted right afterwards. When Stanley Williams took his field trip group into the volcano, these same signals were showing. But no one was given that information that he took into the volcano. And what those signals meant in a physical sense was that this volcano was under immense pressure and that it was sealed shut, and, the, and beneath the volcano, the water was so pressurized that it was getting ready to blow. But you're saying Stanley Williams knew this? He had the information. He had the information that this data was showing, and there was a meeting report that Williams collaborated on with a colleague named John Sticks that was never discussed. It was one of about 100 papers. So the people that were at the meeting, you know, with talks going on in Spanish and English, had never heard this information. But a meeting report stated that Galeris is acting just like it did before its last eruption in July, and that if you see these signals, these tornillos, or long-period seismic events is their technical name, then Galeris is active and dangerous. And this is a paper that Williams had collaborated on. So he definitely knew the significance, but I think he chose to ignore that because Williams had always kind of wanted to ignore seismic data. He was a gas scientist and spent his entire career wanting to predict eruptions using gas data. And he had kind of made a maverick out of himself in the scientific community. So I don't think that Williams did anything malicious. I think that he didn't want to believe that that the volcano was dangerous. He wanted to lead his field trip, and so he decided for himself that it wasn't dangerous, even based on the data. But the very tragic part is that no one else was given that information. Six of the other survivor, 
survivors that I've interviewed say they were told nothing, only that the volcano was completely quiet. But yet in your book, you um, tell the story about how Stanley Williams declared that he was the only survivor, but apparently you found that not to be true. Yes, Barry, that was one of the initial things that kind of tipped me off to, this is a very strange story, a much stranger story than the one that's been told to the media. Immediately after Stanley Williams came back, and he was severely injured in the eruption, he had a rock in in his head that he had brain surgery, his legs were uh, broken in, in many places, but he was making a miraculous recovery And he instantly went to the news media and started to tell them that he was the only survivor of a terrible, unforeseen eruption. And this was the story that I had heard, and this was the story that you can see on Discovery Channel, on Dateline, on the nightly news. And he really began to enjoy this um, kind of celebrityhood that that had come out. And many of the colleagues in the community, in the scientific community, were just disgusted because these it was kind of at the expense of these people dying on a field trip that he had led. He showed no remorse, and when the other survivors contacted him to try to set the story straight, he became just angry and belligerent and said, you know, you're pathetic liars, and you don't know what you're talking about. And so it was a very difficult situation. Do you think that uh, he was intentionally... He uh, was d- aware of the fact that there were survivors, so it wasn't a matter of the fact of his injuries, because it depended on the audience. So I found records when I did my investigation where he wrote for scientific publications and admitted that there were other people right next to him. But when he went to the news media, he'd say, I'm the only survivor. And that was one of the very strangest things about this man and and how he was handling the aftermath of this tragedy. Did you ever have an opportunity to confront him with this contradiction? Yes. Not only the contradiction of of being the only survivor, but I also had to approach Williams about the fact that I knew that they had seen the seismic data before the eruption, because what Williams had always said was that there was no way of knowing until afterward. So I talk in my epilogue of my book about confronting him and, and you know, talking to him about those issues. In 1999, Stanley Williams and another author who was write, co-writing his book sold a book proposal based on the fact that Stanley Williams was the only survivor. And so this was seven years after the tragedy, and this man was still trying to, you know, tell this completely false story in order to, you know, be the kind of celebrity that he had become and and sell a book based on that. So then my book uh, came out. He was aware I was writing it, and he was aware that I had started to talk to the other survivors. So by after writing his book for a year, his own co-writer had to confront Stanley Williams and say, look, we can't tell this lie anymore. We're going to have to tell the truth. And so his book has been rewritten to to include the other survivors. And he still denies that he called himself the only survivor, even though there are transcripts that I talk about in my book. And so when I went to confront Stanley Williams, I knew that he had already changed his story about being the only survivor. But the important thing I wanted to talk to him about was the fact that there was data that this volcano was dangerous. When he first came back, he said, 
there wasn't any data. That was the story that he was sticking to. Once he found out that I had the information that there was data, his story turned into that the he didn't know anything about it and that the Colombians may have, but they didn't tell him. Then the story changed again, and he said, well, I knew about it, but it did, couldn't have meant anything, Well, which is totally untrue. And in page 203 of my book, I quote the abstract that he collaborated on that says this volcano is dangerous with these signals. So Stanley Williams has just, He's changed his story over and over again. And the, the most important thing is that not that it was malicious or that there was t- intent, and I'm sure Stanley Williams is not suicidal, but no one that went in the, this volcano was given the, the opportunity to make a valid decision. They were only told that this volcano was safe. So you don't know whether um, his statements are a result of the head injury he suffered uh, when he was there during the explosion or something else. I don't think that his head injuries are an excuse for the fact that he's constantly contradicting himself and changing his story. I think he made mistakes about not giving people information about safety. There were no safety procedures when they went into this volcano. I don't know what motivated Williams. I think, you know, the book talks about what happened, and I think readers will have to decide what they think. Victoria, in the prologue of your book, um, you have a very descriptive passage about your visit to the volcano. Could you read some of that for us, please? Yes, I'd be happy to. This is about my trip down to Colombia and to the volcano Galeras uh, when I wanted to really kind of get a feel for this mountain and talk to the people that had worked on it. So this is the day I was there, and this is March 12, 2000, in Pasto, Colombia. It's late morning, 40 degrees with a strong wind, and we were standing on the summit of Galeras, an ample 14,000-foot volcano in southern Colombia. In my backpack, I have two candy bars, offerings to appease the mountain, brought along at the urging of Alfredo Rodan, my Guatemalan guide. Alfredo has survived an eruption of Galeras once, and he isn't taking any chances. Galeras doesn't like strangers. The summit of Galeras is 500 feet above its crater. I am here atop this volcano because there is a story inside this barren landscape that links scientists and non-scientists a series of events that tore apart a city, divided journalists and politicians, played the scientists against the people. A story with centuries-old roots that escalated over a decade and culminated on this very spot in 1993 in the deaths of nine people, Galeris' first and only victims in recorded time. I walk east along the ridge and stand by myself, looking down into the carved-out caldera, I am 33 years old, the same age that Marta Kawache was on that day in 1993. Like Marta, I am a geologist, but Marta grew up at the back door of this volcano on a small farm in the village of Consaca, and I was raised in the suburbs of Southern California. While I hemmed and hawed and wondered what to do with my life, Marta literally took on mountains. I would like to imagine that I could follow in her footsteps, but I'm honestly not sure I could. Marta is a hero. 
That January day, Galeris's crater roared like a jet engine, shooting out black clouds with roots of incandescent fire. While a dozen men stood frozen in fear on the summit, Marta descended into the inferno. I picture the five-foot-one-inch scientist climbing down the rope. She tries to run across the rubble. Scorching rocks burn through her boots and sizzle on the cold ground. The volcano roars. Near a three-foot boulder, she finds her professor, Stanley Williams. He is scorched and twisted and bloodied and is crying for help. Close to him are four more victims of the volcano, unrecognizably contorted, deep holes in their skulls, their clothes have seared onto their lifeless bodies. It takes over two hours for Kalache and three others to carry Williams to safety. Six more narrowly escape with their lives. Nine others would never return. There are incredible heroes in this desolate cauldron, and there are ghosts. The path that brought them here stretches back a decade and reaches 300 miles north along the Cordillera Central. There... In 1984, Marta Kawache and a group of young Colombian scientists worked to uncover the deadly secrets of another volcano called Nevado del Ruiz. The two volcanoes are inextricably linked by geology, by legend, and by scientific failing. It is impossible to understand what happened here at Galeras without first going back to the terrible tragedy at Nevado del Ruiz. I take a deep breath and stare hard into the volcano's steaming interior. Too soon, a breaking wave of white mist comes up and over the rim of the volcano and spills into the crater. Galeris disappears from view. I wait, hoping for another glimpse, another moment, but it is not to be. The clouds have settled like a blanket over the volcano's cone. I clap my gloved hands to bring them back the circulation and walk toward Alfredo. It's time to go back. Victoria Bruce, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. One of my favorite books I read throughout my research for No Apparent Danger was another volcano book, and it's called um, The Measure of a Mountain, and it's a book by Bruce Barcott, who fell in love with Mount Rainier in Washington State, and it's kind of his journey, a man's journey around this volcano, and it's a fabulous lesson in, in people and nature and, and the challenges of, of wanting to be out in nature, and it's, it's just a wonderful book. Tell us again the name. It's called The Measure of a Mountain. Victoria Bruce, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. Victoria Bruce is the author of No Apparent Danger. The book that she recommends is Measure of a Mountain by Bruce Barcott. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 
West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.